Good morning, everybody. Another wonderful start to a beautiful day. This morning, I found myself on house arrest for a few hours. Our dryer has been aging rapidly over the past few months, and it squeaks to high heaven every time that it's turned on. So, I, a 26-year-old American man who knows how to change a light bulb on a good day, had to wait for the maintenance man to come up, and I don't know what he did. But I sat there in sweatpants and uh, slippers while this 70-something-year-old man with a cane did all the hard labor. Thank you, Doug. You were super kind and very helpful. Anything new with you lot? Anything I've missed entirely that maybe I should be talking about? Speaking of you guys, there are a few new countries to shout out for listening. And it has been a minute since I've done this, so forgive me if I've previously mentioned one or two of these. But we have Guatemala to welcome in, Malta, Cyprus, the Cayman Islands, and finally, South Korea. I doubt they have access to podcasts in the north, sadly. But yes, a big thank you to all of the new listeners all around the world. Welcome. Well, my little biscuits, shall we? Today, I bring you the Drowning Girls. My name is Eli, and this is Murder in the Morning. I didn't write my sources down for today. Obviously, there's Murderpedia and Wikipedia, but the real important ones I will list down below. I will be honest with you, I I did steal that title uh, of the episode from a play of the same name that has garnered attention in recent years. The show recounts the story that I am about to share with you, just on stage. In sticking with the theme of recent episodes, we will be staying in Britain today to explore yet another era and its crimes. Last week we dove into the Victorian era and the Georgian era, and today we will get into the Edwardian era. Often called the Gilded Age for its brief moment of peace between wars, this era lasted from 1901 to 1910, and is named after Queen Victoria's son, King Edward, because why not? According to PBS, it was a leisurely time when women wore picturesque hats and did not vote, when the rich were not ashamed to live conspicuously and the sun really never set on the British flag. It was also a time of great inequality in which the privileges of the rich were made possible by the labor of the poor, an age when the inequalities of wealth and poverty were starkly painted and the conventions of class were rigidly defined. There was a place for everyone, and everyone knew their place. On the same site, I found these weird rules that everyone, basically everyone had to live by, at least of high society status. For example, you had to address your servants a certain way, everywhere and every time. Quote, it is very much the custom in the old houses that, when entering into new service, lower servants adopt new names given to them by their masters. Following this tradition, you would rename certain members of your staff, and common names for footmen were like James and John and other Bible names. It is not expected that you take the trouble to remember the names of all your staff. 
and in order to avoid obliging you to converse with them, lower servants will endeavor to make themselves invisible to you. As such, they should not be acknowledged, end quote. The servants themselves were not allowed to talk to each other, talk to children, or any visiting guest. Women were forbidden from smoking, but not the men, because apparently it was unladylike. This is a quote from one wealthy man of the era named Sir John Olaf Cooper. I really don't have a problem with having servants. If I'm not being served, they don't have a job. It's absolutely magnificent, and I am enjoying it. So, you kind of get the vibe of this very, very class-based society. As much as the Victorians obsessed over and celebrated death, the fascination didn't simply cease to exist during Edward's reign. These few short years have plenty of mystery and murder painted throughout. In December of 1914, a real estate agent by the name of John Lloyd married his short-term girlfriend in the town of Bath in England. They headed to London that afternoon, drew up wills in each other's names, and took up lodging there to commiserate their relationship. That evening, while Margaret took a bath, John told the owner of the lodge that he was headed out to buy tomatoes, among other veggies, for his wife. Upon his return, he found his wife dead in their bathtub. An inquest into the death took place days later when the death was ruled accidental by authorities and no more would come of it, or so they thought. As we have our armchair experts and internet sleuths of today, the Edwardians were very much crime-obsessed themselves. Margaret's death was reported in the paper News of the World throughout London and elsewhere, and it caught the eye of one Joseph Crossley. According to Murderpedia, on January 3, 1915, Joseph Crossley wrote Detective Inspector Arthur Neal of the Metro Police in response to Margaret's death, remarking how eerily similar it was to the death of Alice Smith only 12 months previous in Blackpool. Quote, together with the letter were two newspaper clippings. One was from the News of the World dated before Christmas 1914 about the tragic death of Margaret, and the other clipping contained the report of a coroner's inquest, inquest dated December 13, 1913 in Blackpool, almost exactly a year ago. This clipping was about a woman named Alice Smith, surname Burnham, who died suddenly in a boarding house in that city while taking a bath in her bathtub. She was found by her husband, George Smith. The letter, dated January 3rd, was written by James Crossley, the landlord of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, on behalf of Crossley's wife and Mr. Charles Burnham who both expressed their suspicion of the striking similarity of the two incidents and urged the police to investigate, end quote. So basically, Alice Smith, surname Burnham, her father was not confident about her daughter's death. And then when this Mr. Crossley character found out about this second very, very similar incident, they decided that they at least had to tell somebody. Arthur Neal instantly intrigued, knew that it wouldn't hurt to at least look into it. He went to the lodging in London where Margaret had died to examine this bathtub. He found it odd that an adult woman could have drowned in such a small tub, filled only three quarters the way full when she was found. On his way out, the landlady of the lodge mentioned that 
before Mr. Lloyd had even agreed to stay in the room with his wife, he insisted on inspecting the bathroom first. Quote, Neil then went to the coroner, Dr. Bates, who had signed the death certificate, and cautiously asked him if there were signs of violence on the woman. There were none, except for a tiny bruise above the left elbow. However, what was striking about the whole thing was, was that Mr. Lloyd had not shown any grief. Plus, he ordered the cheapest coffin for his deceased wife. Upon further investigation, Neil was able to learn that a will was made out on the 18th, three hours before Margaret Lloyd died, and the sole beneficiary was none other, no, no, was none other than Mr. Lloyd. On January 12th, Dr. Bates called. He had an inquiry for the Yorkshire in Insurance Company about the death of Margaret Lloyd. She had, three days before she was married, taken out a life insurance policy for £700 with her husband John Lloyd as the sole beneficiary. Neil promptly asked the doctor to stall in his reply. At once, he asked for more data on the Alice Smith case from the, from the Blackpool police. Mrs. Smith, or Burnham, likewise took out a life insurance policy and made a will in her husband's favor, and again only accepted lodgings in Blackpool after Mr. Smith inspected the bathtub, end quote. Besides the obvious similarities between the two deaths, that was the first real, like, aha moment for the, de for the detective. Arthur Neal was now convinced that he was dealing with the same man. Detective Neal then reached out to the coroner and asked him to go ahead and sign off with the insurance company, allowing Mr. Lloyd to come and collect his payment. This detective was determined on running into this man one way or another, and he posted up night and day at the insurance office, waiting patiently. Quote, at last, on February 1st, a man fitting Mr. Lloyd or Mr. Smith's description appeared. Inspector Neal introduced himself and asked him whether he was John Lloyd. Yes, replied the man. Then Neal asked him, was he also George Smith? The man denied it. Inspector Neal, already sure that John Lloyd and George Smith, George Smith, were the same person, told him that he would take him in for questioning because of begamy. The crime of begamy being married to two people at once. So the man finally admitted that he was indeed George Smith. Arthur Neal guessed that Smith made that admission because he would rather admit to having committed begamy than murder. In any case, Smith was under arrest. End quote. At this point, they reached out to renowned pathologist Dr. Bernard Spilsbury, who suggested that they exhume Margaret's body. What he found was odd, and his theory was even weirder, but we'll get to that in a moment. They wanted to keep this investigation under wraps as best they could, but as always, the media wins and they get a hold of the story and began selling stories of these brides in the bath. On February 8th, the police chief of a small seaside village near Kent named Hearn Bay read the stories of the deceased brides and remembered a strikingly similar case. A year before Alice Burnham's death in Blackpool, one Henry Williams had rented a house in 80 High Street with no bath for himself and his wife Beatrice, a.k.a. Bessie, Monday, whom he had married in 1910. Seven weeks later, he rented a bathtub for the both of them. Then he took his wife to the local doctor, Frank French, due to a supposed attack of epilepsy. Although she had only been complaining of headaches, 
to which the doctor prescribed some medication. On July 12th of 1912, Mr. Williams woke up Dr. French, saying that his wife was having another attack. He checked on her and promised to come back the following afternoon. However, he was surprised when, the following morning, he was informed by Mr. Williams that his wife had died of drowning. The doctor found Bessie Williams in the tub, her head underwater, her legs stretched out straight, and her, and her feet protruding out from the water. There was no trace of violence, so Dr. French attributed the drowning to an attack of epilepsy. The inquest jury was convinced and awarded Mr. Williams the amount of 2,500 pounds as stipulated in her will, made up five days before her death. Back in London, Neil had received confirmation from Hearn Bay near Kent. This Henry Williams was the same man as John Lloyd and George Smith. Detective Neal, along with help from many others, is slowly but very strongly building a case against this man. And now they have not two, but three victims who all died in a similar fashion. According to Murderpedia, for weeks, pathologist Spilsbury pondered over the bathtubs and the victim's measurements. No matter how he spun it, the tub was simply too small for this epileptic fit theory. Suddenly, he hit upon a possible solution. Using Dr. French's description of Bessie Williams when he found her in the bathtub with her feet up, Spilsbury reasoned that Smith, Mr. Smith, under the pretense of a lover's teasing, may have seized Bessie by the feet, suddenly pulled them up toward himself, sliding the upper part of her body underwater. This sudden flood of water into her nose and throat could have caused shock and a sudden loss of consciousness. This would explain the absence of injuries and minimal signs of drowning. To test this theory, Detective Neal hired several experienced women divers of the same size and the same build as the three victims. He tried to push them underwater by force, but there was always inevitable signs of struggle. But then Neal did what Spielsbury had suggested. He, he unexpectedly pulled the feet of one of the divers and her head glided underwater before she knew what had happened. Neil was alarmed when he saw that the woman was no longer moving. He quickly pulled her out of the tub, and it took him and a doctor over 30 minutes before they were able to fully resuscitate her. When she came to, she related that the only, she, only thing she remembered was the rush of water before she lost consciousness. Despite the fact that she expected the attack and was an experienced diver. Thus, Spilsbury theory was confirmed. Out of all the cases I've ever, I've ever come across, the solution to this problem is easily the most fascinating. How they got to the point of making sense is wild, but a huge props to the pathologist who came to that conclusion, and a big thank you for that lady for taking one for the team. So on March 23rd, 1915, detectives confidently arrested George Smith, and charged him with the murders of Margaret, Alice, and Bessie. And on June 22nd, he would go to trial. But who was he? Who is this George Smith, and how did he get to be this sick man that he was? According to the Watford Observer, Smith was born at Bethnal Green in 1872. He was a cold, heartless man who loved a woman named Edith Pegler. His love for her, if it ever existed, paled against his love for money. But in 
but if he was lazy and would not work hard to earn money, he did possess a special quality that enabled him to get it. For George Smith had a way with the ladies. Smith was a product of the late Victorian period when successful, successful men made lots of money and whose daughters were wealthy and possessed everything they wanted, except sometimes a husband. An available man with power in his eyes was just what they needed. A man like George Smith. But before he launched this career, he first married Caroline Thornhill. She was 18 and may have thought that she was marrying a prosperous businessman named George Love who owned a bread shop. Sadly, when he went bankrupt, he set his wife to work as a maidservant, prompting her to steal her employer's jewelry and silver. They lived and worked in London, then on to Brighton and Eastburn to steal from more rich people. All went well for them until the day that Caroline, at her husband's request, tried to sell some jewelry, illegally stolen, and was arrested when the suspicious pawnbroker called the police. She went to prison for over a year, while Love, or Smith, disappeared. Caroline was set in her revenge. When she was released, she saw Smith, her still lawful husband, by chance one day and called the police. She testified against him, and he was sentenced to two to two years. He probably would have ended up seeking revenge in return for himself, but he never got the, chan the chance because she would migrate to Canada, but again, they still remained married. Smith then went on to marry a string of women, always for money. He would either persuade them to hand their money over to him, usually saying it was for a business venture or to ensure their lives. Once he had what he wanted, he would simply disappear leaving victims with broken hearts and empty bank accounts, or in the three cases above, dead. In August of 1910, Smith, calling himself Henry Williams, married Bessie Monday, trying to steal a sum of roughly 2,500 pounds from her. Long story short, Smith was unable to get his hands on the money, so he ended up leaving, but 18 months later, they ran into each other again, still married, and he somehow convinced her to take him back, still thinking he had a chance to nab this 2,500 pounds. Delighted to have her husband back, thinking that this was life balancing its way out, Bessie took him back to her lodgings, and they decided to draw, draw up mutual wills, whereby each would benefit in the event of the other's death. This meant Smith would inherit the, would inherit the coveted 2,500 pounds, while his wife would get nothing. And from that point on, Bessie Monday was in mortal danger. Less than a week later, she was dead due to a accidental drowning. Just over a year later, in November of 1913, Smith married Alice Burnham, who was 25 at the time. Soon after, he persuaded her to make a will in his favor, of course. They went on to Blackpool, and on their honeymoon, they found an accommodation with a bathroom. As before, Smith's wife had cause to see a doctor, and one morning, having popped out to buy some eggs, Smith returned to find his wife dead in the bath, having first ensured that the landlady was aware that he had left to go visit a shop. The doctor was called, found nothing suspicious, and again, Smith inherited a whole bunch of money. From there, he murdered Margaret, and that Crossley character began to catch on, to this whole act. Alrighty. On June 22nd, 
his trial begins at the Old Bailey Court. Much of the evidence laid out over nine days is circumstantial, but still weighed very heavily on everyone in the courtroom. It would take the jury less than 20 minutes to find him guilty and sentence him to death on July 1st. Quote, on the morning of his execution, George Joseph Smith was a wreck. With death staring him in the face, he was led quickly and shakily to the scaffold and positioned onto the trapdoor where the hood was placed over his head. As famous hangman John Ellis placed the noose around his neck, he cried out loudly, I'm innocent! And a moment later, this cruel, calculating man, who had deceived for gain and murdered three innocent women with his bare hands, was killed. End quote. And that is the story of the drowning girls. There are other theories as to how he actually controlled and killed the girls, like hypno hypnosis, for example, taken mainly from the story of Svengali, an evil hypnotist who mesmerized women into a life of servitude. And even though I may not think that theory or other theory holds up, Smith's own lawyer did. Quote, This seems far-fetched, but it was the view advanced by Smith's own barrister, Edward Marshall Hall. After his client was found guilty and sentenced to hang, he wrote of his conviction that Smith had indeed killed his wives, but not in the way suggested in court. I had a long interview with Smith, and I was convinced that he was a hypnotist, he said. Once I accepted this theory, the whole thing was explained. Others suggest that Smith simply terrified his wives into accepting their fate. But the truth is, it is unlikely that, that we shall ever know. End quote. Does it matter, though? I'm pretty sure that we can all agree he murdered at least three women and deserves to rot in the bad place. In the bad place. I love these stories from the 18th, 19th, 20th century England. They simply don't disappoint. Although some, some of the language is tough to get used to with all these old articles and whatnot. But obviously, I hope you all enjoyed the story as well. I know this one was a bit more popular of a, a tale. You've probably heard it before or at least mentioned. But it is a pleasure to repurpose it once more for you guys. Alrighty. Thank you all once again from the bottom of my heart. Thank you to all the new and old listeners around the world, and stick around for a little bonus bit after the music. Okie dokie. Bye-bye. Love you. Seventy frickin' episodes, guys. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I thought I was done after four. To go from drinking almost every day and sleeping in to reading and writing basically every day has created this massive shift in my mental health. And in part, I owe that to you all. Oh, exciting news. My brother's girlfriend um, was accepted into grad school here at Dartmouth and she might be moving in with us. Woohoo! Have I talked to you guys in depth about British executioner John Ellis. I feel like I have. I was about to share an article about him for this piece, but I'll have to uh, double back and check to make sure I have it. And, and, and that is okay, though. We get to broaden our horizons. Britain was not the only country with executioners. Let us not forget about our snow-loving friends, the Canadians.
titled Canada's Hangman of the Haunted Walk website. When Arthur B. English accepted an offer of employment from the Government of Canada around 1913, he was not engaged as a typical public servant. He was hired to fill the role of official executioner to the Dominion of Canada. Under the professional name Arthur Ellis, likely inspired by English hangman John Ellis, Arthur traveled from coast to coast performing hangings wherever criminals were sentenced to meet their end by the noose. The goal of hanging seems simple, to quickly break the condemned person's neck so that the death is relatively fast and painless. In Arthur's time, calculating the exact length of rope needed was complicated by variables like the thickness of a person's neck, the springiness of the gallows beam, or the stretch of the rope itself. In 1915, Ellis set a new record for the speed of a hanging when he executed the infamous criminal Dutch Wagner in 47 seconds. He then increased this speed several times over the next two decades. One man's execution took only 15 seconds. Hangings did not always go smoothly, though. When Ellis was called upon to hang Antonio Spracage, the presiding doctor declared that his heart stopped beating after eight minutes. However, the body continued to twitch, and he was not declared officially dead for one hour and 11 minutes. Despite becoming Canada's most well-known and experienced hangman over the course of his career, Ellis made calculations that resulted in excruciating strangulation and occasionally decapitation. In 1935, at the age of 71, Ellis was called upon to conduct the execution of Thomasina S. at the Bordeaux prison in Montreal. She had been condemned for plotting the murder of her husband Nicholas. He was found beaten to death behind Montreal's Blue Bonnets Raceway in 1934. When it came to the hanging on March 29th, Ellis calculated the length of her rope based on her recorded weight upon entering prison several months earlier. However, she had gained 42 pounds during her time behind bars, good for you, and despite his expertise, Ellis apparently did not notice this and neglected to shorten the rope accordingly. Seconds after she dropped through the trap door of the gallows, the noose sprang back empty. Thomasina had been beheaded. Hanging a woman was always a sensitive matter, and her case was the end of his career. Three years later, on July 21, 1938, he died from malnutrition while living in poverty in Montreal. Throughout his lifetime, it is estimated that Arthur Ellis carried out more than 600 hangings in Britain, the Middle East, and of course, Canada. And that is the story of Canadian hangman Arthur English, a.k.a. Arthur Ellis. Oh, I, I'm going to I'm going to do a deep dive into hangman. Mark my words. Thank you all once again for taking the time out of your day to listen to me ramble on and on and on. I truly appreciate it. And I truly appreciate all of you. Okie dokie. Bye bye. Love you. <laughs>